Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, except today we are a priest, a rabbi, and a cantor because we are joined by cantor Joshua Finkel. Hi, Josh. Hi, Carl. Thanks. It's so good to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Oh, yeah. Well, it was Daniel who invited you. Hi, Daniel. Hello, hello. And I am, I am deeply gratified by the invitation. Um, Daniel, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, this chapter and, and how Josh can help us all not to fall asleep, as we probably did last week when we were doing <laughs> tons and tons of repetition. Yes, what, what was the phrase last week that uh, Alter had? I loved that. Uh, it was the most extravagant deployment of verbatim repetition yes. <laughs> in scripture. Yes. <laughs> Uh, exquisite, I think, right? Yeah. Extravagant. Extravagant. Extra- okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, good, good. Uh, so keeping with that theme, we uh, have here in Chapter 37, uh, once again, more of this priestly content. Uh, so I know we've talked a lot about this idea, but, right, of course, a lot of Exodus, almost all of Leviticus, and a big part of Numbers, is priestly content, meaning it's effectively a guide for the priests to do their job. Uh, And so here what we're getting is more of a description of the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the ark, uh, which are being framed within the context of being for the Mishkan, for the traveling tabernacle in the wilderness during the 40 years. But of course, we also know is really a conversation about the operations of early Second Temple Judaism in, uh, call it, you know, 500 BCE or something. Interesting. Now, in the Episcopal Church, we have a kind of go-to text uh, by this guy named Mishno. Uh, I think it's called something like The Guide to Celebrating the Eucharist. And that is a book that priests use when we're trying to figure out what the proper hand gesture should be for reading a given part of the Eucharist or whatnot. So this is kind of what that was back in the day. Do Do rabbis and cantors have similar books, you know, kind of the hidden knowledge about how to wiggle your fingers at exactly the right moment? Well, interestingly, I would, you know, I would think that um, a lot of that would relate to um, uh, the, the temple uh, and the existence of the temple. And in, in, the, in the post-temple age, those things no longer being uh, relevant in the same ways. But um, some of the ways in which Torah is chanted in the synagogue today is based upon a form of like uh, – um, I don't want to say quite uh, uh, quite so charged the word as chiromancy, but like, um, you know, uh, maybe chironomy, uh, where uh, the, the shape of the hands would indicate the kind of musical notes that are supposed to be uh, attached to the chanting of a certain word or phrase. Wow, that is a delightful new word to me, chiromancy. So, uh, well, that's that really belongs more in the world of of, of Harry Potter, I think, than than um, <laughs> than biblical scholarship. Uh, let's, what is chiromancy? Uh, meaning that you know someone would have uh, these hand gestures to indicate how things could be chanted, and um, that was kind of a step towards the trope that we use when we chant Torah today. Um, but uh, in some communities, it's still used, and in fact. Um, uh, in some Sephardic communities, uh, I understand that um, the person chanting Torah has someone helping them behind who will make the hand gestures on their back for how they should chant uh, the coming words and phrases. Oh, I totally saw this done. Really? I saw this done in a synagogue in Israel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, by the way, Sephardic community would be Jews whose families 
broadly come from what we now call the right. Arab world. Right. Okay. So uh, this is not happening in uh, Ashkenazi communities really anymore. Mm, no, they would use they would use um, a uh, a tikkun or a book that contains all the words of the Torah with the vowels and special trope markings, and those special trope markings evolved out of this uh, shiranami, um that was being uh, uh, you know used in the first century uh, of the modern era, um, and um, but that was kind of uh, codified um, by um, tradition keepers. Uh, in the late first century uh, on paper. And so you'll see actually under and above uh, the words of the Torah, these little um, squiggles, um, which we call te'amim, which indicate to us the way that um, the words should be chanted and actually did evolve out of this uh, shiranami, out of these hand signals um, and, and so you you find these in a Hebrew Bible, though you won't find them in an actual Torah scroll. A Torah scroll doesn't have these, nor does it have any vowels in it. Huh. Um, but am I right, Josh, that these trope markers, these musical markers, also are at some level punctuation? Yeah, types? yeah, they're punctuation, and in that sense, in a way, they're commentary. I mean, you know, you have in, in English that um, you know pa- the, uh, the was it the panda eats, shoots, and leaves, and depending on what where you yeah. put the comma. <laughs> It means something radically different. Um, And so um, since um, certain symbols indicate where a phrase ends um, and, and, you know, where the next one uh, it would follow begins, um, there's actually a good deal of an interpretation uh, involved in them. And so, um, yeah, you're absolutely right in that statement, Daniel. Um, I have sometimes seen little marks in, in Psalms too, even in like, Psalms printed for Christians, and and I think they're drawn from that. I think it's just a tradition left over, but I might be wrong. Any any knowledge about? I think you're right. Um, I don't want to speak decisively, but um, certainly the Psalms, you know, um, come up in uh, the Jewish tradition, uh, just as in the Christian tradition, that they become attached to certain uh, events and days of the year, and 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 events and the new moon and things like that. And uh, yeah, there is a, a they can be chanted. In a in a mode, uh, just as the Torah uh, um, content is um, now, I haven't done it that often. I've always found it very interesting um, uh, in my own, uh, you know, practice in uh, reform and, and reconstructionist and conservative synagogues. Generally, when I hear the Psalms, they are sung fully rather than being. Um, Chanted, but uh, the exception, of course, being the Song of Songs, uh, which is uh, which is which is chanted um, on uh, on some occasions. So I guess it's not really a, quite a psalm, uh, though. Of course, it has a lot of language yeah. in common. So it's a big favorite here, though. So Josh, <laughs> anyway, go on. Josh, could we ask you to chant a little bit of this? Would you chant the first verse for us of thirty? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, okay. All right, so uh, chapter 37, verse 1, would be chanted uh, like this. Vayas b'tzalel et ha'aron atzeshitim amataim v'chetzi orko ve'amaha v'chetzi rachbo ve'amaha v'chetzi komato Vayetzapehu zahav tahor mi bahitu mi chutz. Vayas lo 
I'll do one more. That was incredibly beautiful. Thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Well, it's, a, it's a lovely tradition. And I'll tell you, it's one of the things that drew me to wanting to be a cantor in the first place as a young, confused, misguided, early 20-year-old trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, you know, I would complain. I would say if, if there was still a career uh, like Homer's, like Homer's, <laughs> who uh, chant the great historical epics, you know, in like the public square in a way that would, um, you know, keep wow. them alive and renew them and, and you know, that would be what I wanted to do. And people would say to me, well, of course you could just become a cantor because uh, you would actually do that. I would say, oh, I would work every day in a synagogue? No way. <laughs> but but I, I guess I came around on it. So yeah, this is definitely one of the things that really drew me to uh, to this this, uh, this yeah. career path. Now, uh, do you do that like every Shabbat? I mean, it, it, is that part of your role now that when the Torah is brought out on Shabbat, you just, you just sing it like that? I have, I've been at communities where that was their preference, but honestly, my preference is, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time actually working with, uh, young people preparing for their bar or bat mitzvah when they turn, uh, 13, uh, and they chant Torah, um, for the community as part of this celebration of them being an adult uh, in the Jewish community and able, uh, for the first time to, to do that. So I really like to encourage like lay leaders and, um, and also teenagers too, for their education yeah. to uh, chant publicly. And I, I, I work with them to get them ready to do that. So at my present, uh, you know, I, I have a great, um, I'm part of a really wonderful community here in, in St. Louis, uh, called, uh, the Shir Hadash Reconstructionist Community. And I'd say I probably chant Torah for them really about once a month. Wow. Uh, and honestly, the rest of the time, it's a lay leader doing it. And I'll stand next to them, um, and kind of act as like a security blanket a little sure. bit. Like a, my, my role in that instance is as what's called a gabi, where, um, they can lean on me a little bit if they forget what comes next. Okay. So this is like a living practice within Judaism and it doesn't matter whether you are a rabbi or a cantor or not. It's just a living practice. That's right. And is that true of all totally. forms of Judaism? I mean, I guess well, I, I'm a little surprised that it's true of Reconstructionism because I, in my mind, Reconstructionists have always been kind of like the Unitarians of Judaism. <laughs> uh, and, and in Christianity, Unitarians are not very liturgical or I, they are, but not in a way that I would, consider <laughs> to show my massive prejudices um, but but it seems that's that's not true in Judaism I would, I would, I would argue that the Reconstructionist movement is the most liturgical of the left third of the of the of the spectrum of observance. Like if you're talking about you know uh, renewal, Reconstructionist, reform, and maybe some left leaning offshoots of conservative Judaism. Um, I, I, I would argue that the Reconstructionists are the most liturgically oriented, although a lot of that is rewritten liturgy and changed liturgy, or as the Reconstructionists would put it, uh, reconstructed liturgy. 
um, that when liturgy encounters modernity and encounters our, our modern ideas that, 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 that we've accepted, um, and they do so disharmoniously that it's up to us, uh, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but to, to reconstruct it according to, uh, modern ethical or, uh, even humanistic, uh, ideas. So, so what dimensions does that take? And, and let me preface this by saying, uh, Episcopalians just had our general convention. Um, there was a lot of talk about the possibility of, uh, coming out with a new prayer book. Like we tend to revise our prayer book about every 50 years. So the current one is from 1979 and is, um, in terms of like, uh, language, it's a little lawn in the tooth, you know, like it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of gendered language in it, which some of us, myself included quibble with, um, think it's a problem. Is that, is that kind of what you mean? Is that what uh, the yeah. work that or, or one great doing? and relevant example is just, for example, in the, um, blessing before reading the Torah, it's traditional to say, uh, you know, uh, blessed are you God who, um, chose us from among all peoples, to inherit the Torah. And this concept of chosenness in Judaism um, has a lot of complexity. And in the Reconstructionist movement, we really like to treat that idea with some distance because we see uh, the way, what it has in common with forms of nationalism that we consider to be toxic. Um, we see how uh, that idea can be used and abused um, by people who would put forth um, uh, an intolerant uh, vision of the world, one in which um, human beings are not equally created in the image of God, as it says in the book of Genesis. So um, we've actually changed uh, the language of that prayer, uh, where it says, uh, who have chosen us uh, among all people, um, uh, we say instead, uh, who has drawn us to um, God's service through the Torah. That that's a pretty good language change, and and Daniel, you you said that reconstructionism has become kind of like these ideas have become standard even among like Reform Jews. So is is that also the language that Reform uses? So no, not on that issue. There's a uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, there's an old something somewhere between a truism and a joke yeah. uh, that we've all become reconstructionists. Uh, now, and what that goes to is what we might call classical reconstructive reconstructionism. I'm not doing well with the uh, verb tenses here. Um, the founder of the reconstructionist movement was a conservative rabbi, Mordecai Kaplan. Uh, and he had a notion that fundamentally Jews were a civilization and not a religion. Well, not, not. Right. We got into this a few podcasts. Not, a, not only a religion, but that, that we were a civilization and like any civilization, we had our religious elements to us, but that uh, religion, at least in the American understanding of it, was the wrong uh, way to think of us, was the wrong angle, it was the wrong lens. And in that sense, I, I think Mordecai Kaplan has uh, uh, really influenced every movement, which speaks originally to his idea. Uh, he didn't... Yeah, within a generation, everybody agreed with him. Definitely not during his lifetime, but within a generation, yeah, that was today. kind of that became the new orthodoxy. In a yeah, way. You'll, you'll find that um, the, the elevator form. speech version. So the elevator speech version is that Judaism is not only a religion but an evolving religious civilization, uh, and so 
in answer to the huh. question, who is a Jew, uh, you know, someone who is an atheist uh, can comfortably say, yes, I am a Jew. Um, and any Jewish American is a member of not one, but two overlapping, uh, evolving civilizations. And by, you know, watching a Woody Allen film or, or reading Sigmund Freud um, or, or thinking about um, Einstein, um, you are still participating in that civilization. So that, that leads to another question. Is, is this primarily an American phenomenon? Reconstructionism, you're saying? Yeah. It's, so yeah. all the movements are basically American phenomenons uh, and don't okay. have a parallel in Israel. Uh, there is such a thing as the reform movement in Israel. There is such a thing as the reconstructionist movement, I would assume, in Israel. There is the renewal movement. There's the conservative movement. But they are very tiny and mostly, though, again, this is changing, mostly made up of what we call Anglos, meaning uh, English speakers who have moved to Israel, uh, mm. that these are primarily American or North American, I should say, uh, phenomenons. It was I mean, only my, here okay. that we were thought of as being primarily a religious community. Never in Europe were we thought of as being primarily a religious Ah. Yeah, I mean, we do have communities in South America and throughout the world in the Reconstructionist movement, but you know, broadly speaking, uh, broadly speaking, it, it is a uniquely American phenomenon, and actually, I would say more so for Reconstructionism than uh, Conservative Judaism and uh, Reform Judaism, which both originated in Germany uh, around the time of the uh, Enlightenment or the Haskalah, as we refer to mm -hmm. it in, in the Jewish tradition, uh, but. We do have we do have communities certainly throughout the world, and uh, yeah, yeah. The the thing that made me ask is what you were describing, Josh. Um, you know about people who who think of themselves as uh, what was the term you used? Not culturally Jewish, but um, part of the Jewish civilization. Uh, it, like I have friends like that. Uh, in America, but I found myself wondering if I lived anywhere else in the world, would I have friends like that? Would, you know, well, I think that, that uh, those um, issues in connection with uh, assimilation and things like that were really much more pronounced and obvious, which is what in America, which is reason that yeah. I think some of the solutions to these problems emerged in America. Um, but um, Again, I, I do think it's an international uh, phenomenon and, uh, and uh, relates to um, encountering modernity throughout the Jewish world. But, you know, in the, it, before the Enlightenment, like a Jew had to live among other Jews and couldn't, was unlikely to be able to vote or serve in the army. And if they were, it meant on some level, as it did in like uh, white Russia, that you essentially kind of had to stop being Jewish at that point. Um, and so it was this question of, well, how can you be both – a fully invested citizen who sends your kids to the same schools as everyone else, serves in the army, uh, participates in that economy, lives next door to people of a different religion from you who all of a sudden tolerate you for some reason. Um, and, and what's going to change about you? And, and once you start going to their schools and applying the, um, scholarship of say enlightenment Germany to, uh, the Bible, Ooh, that presents some real challenges. So, um, so, uh, how you resolve uh, those challenges in your heart and in your family and in your community is going to really end up 
uh, pushing you in different directions from some other Jews. And so that's the, I think that, that, that time, um, is the root of most, uh, Jewish movements forming, although, uh, Reconstructionism is the exception in that it evolved in America, uh, much later in the, you know, uh, mid 1900s. Right. And it had a different set of questions. It sounds like mm. that I was wrestling with. Yeah. Though to return to your core question here, I mean, I think wherever you go in the Jewish world, you are going to encounter a significant number of Jews who are not observant and who are not religious, but still identify as deeply Jewish uh, without seeing a contradiction there. Uh, that that is not an American phenomenon. That's simply the nature of Jewish peoplehood or Jewish civilization. Uh, and in that sense, Mordechai Kaplan is describing Judaism and Jews writ large. It's just that his message was particularly needed in the United States where we were being categorized and in some cases self-categorizing as a religious community. Well, okay. So as you're saying that here, it occurs to me uh, that that is true in Christianity too. Like there are a lot of people who self-identify as Christian without ever going to church. And, um, you know, maybe it's not right to say that whether somebody is religious or not, like we don't, we don't get to judge that, but you can say whether somebody is religiously observant mm. or not. Um, so there are a lot of non-religiously observant Christians. And yet when we encounter them here, I think I at least, uh, and I don't think I'm alone in this, uh, have a certain worry about that because it has become a kind of code language, like oh. Christian culture uh, is is now dog whistling white racism, right? So, uh, so I, I I have no real point to make except to say this is a, this is a really interesting historical moment. This is an interesting yeah. process to think about. Like, as Christianity go through what Judaism has already gone through, um, how will uh, how will that work? Well, it, you know, <laughs> also, too, I want to point out in the spirit of intellectual honesty that as a historically disempowered people, there yeah. are ideas that have sustained us um, that um, were we um, politically empowered at that time might not have been so sustaining, but might have been rather oppressive to our neighbors. So um, there's much of Judaism and Jewish self-understanding that's dear to me that I also see that I see has commonalities with uh, forms of cultural self-understanding that are toxic. Um, and uh, it's a struggle for me to, for example, chosenness, which we were talking about personally. I do relate to that idea that the Jewish right. people has this special mission um, for evolving civilization uh, to, to help it be uh, more ethical and to serve as an example and and that we have a special relationship with God embodied by the Torah and our relationship to the Torah. I love all that stuff. But I also see like the things, A, that it has in common with um, white nationalism that, you know, our, our group has this special um, mission in, in, in wider civilization to, to change it in some way. And I see also the way that um, people who are prejudiced against Jewish people um, can point to those things. And say, see, you know, they think they're special. They think they're different. Um, in terms of in terms of um, conspiracy theories, you know, uh, I'm sure that um, the fact that we self-identify as a people who has a special job to do in civiliz in civilizing uh, the world uh, definitely doesn't help. <laughs> so, so I, I struggle with a lot of those same things too, from from my 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 standing as a Jewish person. Right. Wow. What a, I mean. 
you know, when we started this episode, I did not realize that one of the main questions we would be asking is, um, how, how do we make the transition, uh, from religion to culture or some kind of amalgam of religion and culture in a way that is not, uh, deeply problematic? Here, here. <laughs> so I don't know. Neither uh, do I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's a so, good question, uh, though. It's, oh, it's an essential it, question. Yeah, it's one of the questions, you know, like if, if we're talking about how many movements within Judaism came out of the questions of the Enlightenment, you know, we now have a, our own particular set of very pertinent questions. And we do not have the hindsight of history to help us understand what will come of those questions, but something will. So... Um, okay, so but we we've heard some of this chapter canted. We haven't heard any of it read. Do we do we want to leap into this, um, Daniel and Josh, and and see what we can pull out of it? I love that. Uh, before we leap in, though, Josh, so you read us the first. You chanted us the first three verses beautifully. Uh, and Carl, you asked, "Is this done everywhere in the Jewish world?" And the answer is yes, but it sounds totally different in different places. And this is one of the crazy things that there is a type of musical notation almost that's underneath these words, the trope that Josh is chanting from, but the trope and the, the melody behind it is totally different depending on where you live. Uh, Josh, I'm sure you can give a little more insight than me on that. Right. No, you're doing great. And, uh, yeah. So the, the te I mean, the actual, um, uh, Trope symbols themselves are culturally fixed. Um, that was kind of codified, uh, you know, in the uh, first millennium, uh, near the end of the first millennium, uh, the common era. And so any community uses those. But what it means, as Daniel said, in terms of how you chant it is radically different. And one thing that I'm, I'm hoping we're leading to is that um, Daniel uh, has an exquisite grasp of the Moroccan trope, which is just awesome. I, I hope we're going to get a little sample. So Josh is teasing me here because I have a less than exquisite grasp of the Moroccan trope, but uh, this was my... I would uh, not know uh, the difference. <laughs> so, and that's why I learned it. In our first year of rabbinical school, uh, we had to learn to chant, and they never told us which melody we had to learn. So I thought, I'm going to learn one that my teachers can't correct. Ooh, smart. Smart. Uh, so Josh, will you chant just the first verse again? Uh, and Josh, you chant, is this a German trope that you use? Um, it, well, it's, it's uh, okay. So if, if you want to be really like nerdly and exact about it, what I use is the Avery Binder trope, which is essentially a um, Lithuanian uh, trope that's kind of become like the standard for um, Ashkenazic, meaning um, um, uh, German and Eastern European descended Jewish communities. Um, throughout the modern world, but but it's 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 technically Lithuanian, <laughs> uh, and it, the, okay. that first verse goes like this: um, uh, and so here's in my attempt at a Moroccan trophy here. Vaya <laughs> 
וחצי, הכל ימה וחצי, רק בוהו וימה וחצי קומתו. וואו. That's pretty great. So you can hear radically different. Yeah. So there, um, our, our corollary is there are a couple of chants that we use uh, to sing the Eucharistic prayer. And one of them is a Mozarabic chant, which is based on, I believe, uh, a Jewish chanting from Spain. Um, oh, yes. And, and I once served a bishop who was especially show-offy about it. <laughs> We're like, pull it out at any moment and nobody else can do it. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Uh, so both Josh and I, when we were chanting that, we were reading the same symbols that tell us how to chant it. Uh -huh. uh, just we, we have different traditions here on what those symbols mean. Yeah. So there there's a range of interpretation of, of the very symbols that are supposed to clarify how it should be done. And it's not an accident that with Jews having lived all over the world, what our holy modes and scales sound like are culturally connected. Right. Yeah, Daniel and I have a good friend in town, uh, Rabbi Goodman, who knows quite a bit about the, uh, the makam, which, is, um, <clears throat> which are melodies in which, um, in which Torah is chanted that, um, rel that change depending on what time of year it is and what the closest holidays are um, to a greater degree than ours would. Our, ours do somewhat. For example, if it was the high holidays, I would have chanted that differently. Um, but uh, the Makam uh, is a really fascinating and, and beautiful uh, musical uh, chanting tradition uh, that, to be honest, I don't know a great deal about. And I'm hoping to learn more from Rabbi Goodman when, uh, when he gets some free time over the next month or so. Do you know where it comes from or... Uh, from the Arabic speaking world. So, um, uh, so specifically we're talking about like Tunisia, um, and, uh, Yemen and, uh, Morocco. Um, but, um, yeah. And, and I think the Arabian peninsula in parts as well. Uh, but not all traditions do that. I mean, there's definitely a Sephardic mode of chant, um, that is linked to the, um, to the, um, Te'amim very closely, these symbols very closely. And, uh, and then the makam from what I understand is not, um, is not, um, as tightly fused to them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm actually interested in learning more about it. Uh, yeah. Should, yeah. That sounds awesome. Well, shall we dive into this chapter in, uh, sure. English? Sure. And you know, we, Uh, we can do kind of what we did last week, which is kind of plow through it unless there are like really good reasons to interrupt and then get on to doing more interesting things because, uh, because frankly, <laughs> it is, as you said, uh, just minute instructions for the priestly cast of a temple that no longer exists. In almost all the rest of our uh, book of Exodus is this priestly material. Um I can start, and you can stop me when you want to. Uh, okay. And Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood two and a half cubits its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold, inside and outside, and he made for it a golden molding all around. All right, so I have a nice midrash here, and I may as well share it, because uh, I found almost nothing for this whole chapter. 
it's really, you know, there is something to it. It's like the uh, uh, book report that you're writing while you're reading the book. And by the time you get to the end, you just don't have anything left to say. Uh, <laughs> there's something real happening here with that. Uh, so our Midrash from Midrash Tanhuma. Uh, Rabbi Hanina of Sephoris uh, said that Bitzalel made three chests for the Ark, two of gold and one of wood. He inserted the wooden chest into one golden one and then the other golden one into the wooden one. After that, he covered the edges with gold in order to fill, fulfill what is written, and he overlaid it with gold within and without. So from here, we derive the notion that a scholar's inside must match his or her outside, uh, that this becomes the basis for uh, hypocrisy actually being uh, in a vera, a, a sin in Judaism. Uh, you know, what it's making me think is that Raiders of the Lost Ark got it entirely wrong. I didn't see two other boxes. In that there you arc. go. I'm telling you. So how about the hypocrisy <laughs> of Hollywood? I'm just getting hungry. It sort of sounds uh, like a sandwich that I've been eating today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you should eat. Um, okay. Well, I, I mean, I agree with that. That, that seems like one of those things that is just so true that it's hard to dispute. I mean, does anyone want to stand up for uh, hypocrisy? <laughs> well, as a Probably. hypocrite, I feel like it would be hypocritical for me not to. <laughs> well, I believe your integrity just there disproved your hypocrisy. Uh, you are hoisted on your own petard there, my man. Uh, okay. I, I want to briefly honor Gingy from uh, HUC in, in Jerusalem. I remember he... Rabbi David Wolfen, yeah. uh, Rabbi David Wolfen, fondly known as Gingy because of his red hair, um, who uh, who who shared. Uh, it's the first time I ever heard this midrash. It was from him, and uh, it was just a, a, a beautiful a beautiful teaching. Yeah. yeah, that's very nice. Did he expand on it at all, or was it just basically don't be? Uh, no, it was it was. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to it's hard to replicate um, Rabbi David Wolfen's um, you know uh, character, but he just had a lot of a lot of love shining out of his face for his students when he shared this uh, with us, and we we sat at his feet, and uh, you know it was it was a good it was a good reminder to this 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 class of people who are just starting the path to becoming rabbis and cantors to that um, you know to, it, it's it's not just about uh, getting it right, and it's not about um, it, it, it's about actually allowing it allowing these teachings to 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 affect and, and refine you on the inside well and it sounds like modeling that refinement i mean i like the fact that you say there was a light shining out from you know i mean like obviously his inside was was apparent in his exterior as he very much so yeah. so that is, is not the only radiant thing about him exactly <laughs> That is very, very lovely. Uh, okay, I'll go on from verse 6. And he made a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits in length and a cubit and a half in width. And he made two cherubim of gold. Hammered work he made them at the two edges of the cover. One cherub at one edge and one cherub at the other edge. From the cover he made the cherubim at both its edges. And the cherubim spread their wings above, shielding the cover with their wings and their faces toward each other, toward the cover their faces were. And he made the table of acacia wood, two cubits in length, and a cube. Oh, I have an I have an interjection. Yeah, go. 
So, um, <clears throat> so if you look at the the shot, like the literal meaning of the text, it says that uh, the cherubim on top of the uh, on top of the ark both faced the lid and faced each other. So, <laughs> you know, I think I think the the obvious interpretation is that you know they, they're bodies were facing one another and their heads were uh, facing the lids or, 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 or what have you. But there are uh, those who say that uh-huh. this is an impossibility. And so therefore um, they must've had an extra eye in the center of their head. Um, and uh, I remember I was, I was taught this Midrash uh, at one point, um, but I, unfortunately I cannot recall which one it is. Yeah, but that so there's a kind of third eye Eastern mysticism possibility there. Yeah, um, I although I always thought it was the the seraphim who had all the weird eyes, and that the cherubim were relatively normal in their ocular arrangements. But, right, uh, right. Well, that's that's the the normal belief. I mean, you know, you have you have uh, Ezekiel, you know, talking about the the as you pointed out uh, the the uh, figure in the sky with all the eyes. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, in this particular midrash, they they give the cherubim some extra ones as well. Okay, well that's pretty good. So um, when Third Eye Blind goes to <laughs> cantorial school and take, takes up their rightful place among the cantors, they can they can use that all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, I'm going to go on. We'll just ignore we'll just ignore all that. You um, made the table of acacia wood, two cubits its length and a cubit and a half its width and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made for it a golden molding all around. And he made a frame for it, a hand, hand's breadth all around. And he made a golden molding for its frame all around. And he cast for it four golden rings and set the rings at the four corners, which were at its four legs. Facing the frame, the rings were as housings for the poles to carry the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold to carry the table. And he made the vessels that were on the table, its bowls and shovels and its chalices and its jars, from which libation is done. It's a lot of gold. It's, this is like the Liberace. uh, I was thinking Austin Powers, but you know, okay. Yeah, Austin Powers. There we go. There we go. Uh, somebody else take over reading. I'm tired of my own voice. Sure. Uh, we're talking from verse 17. Okay. He made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand, its base and its shaft of hammered work. Its cups, calyxes, and petals were of one piece with it. Six branches issued from its side, three branches from one side of the lampstand, three branches from the other side of the lampstand. There were three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals on one branch, and there were three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals on the next branch, for all six branches issuing from the lampstand. So there is a teaching here, because there's a lot of disagreement, no one can... Uh, agree on what exactly these cups look like, right? These are theoretically cups that would hold oil that would be burning. Uh, And then once they even have some level of agreement, everyone says, well, it would be impossible to make these. So there's a midrash that says Moses also didn't understand. And so he would just throw lumps of gold into a fire and say, okay, God, I don't get it. You make it. And, and then what That's, would happen? I, would I like it, that would it like spring out of the fire fully made? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's what, That's what we're told. That's what the Midrash says. 
Yeah. I, I sometimes feel like though, these are just like the parent rabbi mm. uh, dealing with the children who won't get along. Like they can't agree on what it really looked like. So the answer is no, 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 no. It's okay. Magic will make it. Yeah. I also think that's a little harsh on poor Bezalel. Uh, you know, he might've been able to pull this off. I have faith. <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, on the lampstand itself, there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and petals. I agree. This is confusing. A calyx of one piece with it under a pair of branches and a calyx of one piece with it under the second pair of branches and a calyx of one piece with it under the last pair of branches. So for all six branches issuing from it, their calyxes and their stems were of one piece with it, the whole of it a single hammered piece of pure gold. He, he made it seven lamps, its tongs and its fire pans of pure gold. And actually, when you're walking it, into the old city of Jerusalem today, uh, you walk through the sort of the classic Arab shook with all the markets. And uh, as you're turning to go towards the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, uh, you go through an area called the Cardo, which is sort of the Jewish merchants area. And there is a full size replica of this also made from gold. <laughs> oh, see, somebody pulled it off. But everyone disagrees on whether or not it's accurate. So, you know, oh. there's that. All right, fine, fine. He made it in all its furnishings out of a talent of pure gold. He made the incense no, altar of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit wide, square and two cubits high. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its tops, its sides round about, and its horns. And he made a gold molding for it round about. He made two gold rings for it under its molding on its two walls on opposite sides as holders for the poles with which to carry it. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He prepared the sacred anointing oil and the pure aromatic incense expertly blended. And so ends the reading. So that's chapter 37. <laughs> A lot of gold. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, as I said in a Bible study to the altar guild, like the, the people who make sure that all the vessels are clean correctly and presentable and everything, you know, this is their dream come true. This is what they most want, right, is to be able to point to a text and say, look, God said that, uh, you know, the corporal has to be folded in exactly this way. It's not just me. I'm not just being crazy. God said it. Right? Yeah. So, so it has some value, I think, to uh, to to even contemporary religious people in their practice, if maybe not in their theology. And yeah, it's kind of unusual too for for biblical texts. You know, when it's when it comes down to like who said what, you know, it, there's so much vagueness and so much skipped. You know, Abraham, uh, you know, heard from God that he's supposed to sacrifice Isaac, and they headed out, and then you know, days later they saw the mountain. Um, there's, you know, this huge, uh, yeah. like, emptiness in terms of, like, the, the ins and outs of who said what and what happened on that journey. Um, and uh, But when you get to this, it's so uh, um, exacting and literal. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that had plenty of utility uh, in the ancient world as well. Not only is, like, see, this is why we do what we do the way that we do it, but um, if someone were far away and unable to see these things or if these 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 holy items as they were were lost you could still know 
what they look like, if that was very important to you, either for your understanding of God and God's will or for a job that you have to do in terms of uh, in terms of religious observance. So, um, you know, it, ha- it has a lot of uh, utility and, and in- insurance against the erosion of time um, in its exactitude. It does. And yet, you know, the grand irony is that the thing it was being exact about was destroyed in time. Though, I was just going to say, though, particularly in the Orthodox world, it's a particular type of Orthodox, too, that that engages in this. There are people who uh, intensely study the minutiae of these texts in preparation for the temple being rebuilt or the temple coming back uh, from on high, depending on their particular theology. Uh, and there are people who practice the sacrifices. There are people who are breeding cows to make sure that it's the right kind of cow uh, for the altar. There are uh, people who really treat this as an imminent new reality of a sort of messianic world. Yeah, hope lives on. Um, as you were saying that, though, Daniel, I found myself feeling tremendously depressed and thinking of my own religion uh, because – you know, the temple was destroyed. The second temple was destroyed almost 2000 years ago. Um, and I, I think like, what is it about us as human beings that hope make, you know, that creates several responses, uh, to sweeping cultural and sociological change, you know, that one response is, as we were talking about before, to try and figure out who we are in terms of that change and, and be willing to some extent to res- reshape ourselves and our own understandings. And one response is to fight against that change so much that our, our highest ideal, our highest hope is that things can just go back to being the way they were. And uh, I, I, you know, I, from the Christian point of view, I see Christianity going in both directions at once. And it's a very large question of, of which will predominate or if any will predominate. I think that's a beautiful thought. You know, there's this, there's this Hasidic teaching that uh, the Messiah will come when we no longer need him. That, um, you know, this understanding that, that, that we are God's partners in um, in getting the world to a place where um, it could be described in some way as messianic, um, and I'm, I'm definitely you know I'm definitely showing my liberal Jewish stripes um, by saying so. But you know my uh, the the message that I see to our generation, um, regardless of your religion, from uh, the Torah and from foundational Judeo uh, Judaic texts is that, uh, you know, ultimately our responsibility is to care for our civilization so that we can come to an era in which, uh, in which, uh, it's, it's a bygone conclusion. Well, thank you both. I think that that was a really fun discussion and thank you for this, for the canting on both your parts. Um, (laughs) my pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Is canting the right way to put it by the way? Uh, chanting or, um, a lot of, a lot of Jews call it laning, which is a Yiddish word. Ah, very nice. Very nice. Thank you for laning. Um, well, dear listeners, you have been listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi, in this case, a priest, a rabbi and a cantor explore scripture. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness is made possible by a very kind donation from Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Um, do any of you have any shameless plugs before we, before we leave today? 
but I, maybe not. I read a piece this week by Ezra Klein at Vox that I can't get out of my head. It's called White Threat in a Browning America. Uh, you can find it yeah. on Vox.com. Uh, and it's a look at scientific look at the impact of majority ethnicities thinking about demographic change and how that changes their politics broadly. Uh, really, really powerful. Yeah, they were talking about it. They were talking about it on the weeds um, that just came out yesterday. Ah, cool. uh, Josh, do you have anything you want to plug, either of yours or others? Yeah, I have a much more shameless plug. If you're in the St. Louis area and you're looking for a Jewish community to check out, uh, please come by and check out Shirhadash Reconstructionist Community. We meet at the uh, JCCA in Kreefkor, um, the East One. Uh, check out our website. We meet every weekend and you can come and join that us. And we would love excellent. that. Uh, I, I actually don't think I have any plugs this week. Uh, you know, I've just been sitting around waiting for my foot to heal and therefore not particularly active in the world. So, uh, okay. Uh, thank you, dear listeners for joining us. I forgot to mention that our theme music is by the great Brianna Kelly from her album, all things new. Have a wonderful week, everyone. And thank you, Josh and Daniel. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.